Last week we laid a foundation for where we hope to go with this study through the Psalms. Uh, most importantly, we established that this is more than just a study this summer. Um, we aren't just going to analyze how David uses music to express his relationship with God. We're going to try and spend the next 26 weeks walking in David's footsteps. We don't just want to study the Psalms, we want to do the Psalms. If you haven't seen the hashtag bounce around Facebook, um, we're going to do some things to discuss this and to to dig in deep into what it looks like to be honest with God, to pour out your heart and guts with God and his people. I mean, the only reason we have the Psalms is because David was bold enough to not only feel this stuff and own that he felt this stuff, not only pray this stuff to God, but write it down so the people of God could use it, so other Christians could grow from it. How many of you have ever heard somebody share their their heartbreaks, their testimony, their struggles, their pains, and it encouraged you to hear it. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah, almost all of us. Like, has anybody ever put somebody on a pedestal and felt like, man, that person doesn't have any problems? Then all of a sudden they tell you their problems and you're like, oh my God, they're human. That is amazing. I'm so glad they told me that. Like, it's so much better to know that they have issues. I'm still trying to learn to find out if Dale's actually human or if he's a Superman. But, um, but uh, yeah, when we're honest with with who we are and what we're going through, it helps other people. And that's what David did. He, he laid it out um, in the Psalms for us to, to have and to grow from. So we're hoping to learn how to do that this summer. We're not just studying these to see what they say. We're hoping to learn how to do the Psalms, how to live that way where we can be transparent with this stuff. Oh, hold on. I meant to put this out here just for... I'm going to hang this out here just so you know that I am part of the thug life. <clears throat> what's funny is all of my like youngest clothes my mom bought me like my wife buys me old man stuff my mom buys me the the like the like kids clothes so um, anyway so what that means this summer as we study the Psalms is that we're going to get emotional we're going to be dealing in poetry we're going to be dealing in metaphor and imagination and trust me this part's going to make some of you feel itchy but we're going to be dealing in bad theology. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be dealing in, in some stuff that can confuse us. One of the problems that people have when they come to the Psalms is they act like the Psalms are a, an epistle that's written to be a theological treatise on the nature of God. And if you go to the Psalms that way, you can get real confused and real frustrated. Um, because that's not the way they were written. Uh, so if we go to, say, Psalms 3-7... We will read this. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Slap my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. These are what we call the imprecatory psalms. The, the psalms where David is calling down a curse or a judgment on somebody else. How many of you ever prayed that God would knock the teeth out of, out of the wicked? Most of us don't do that. Like Most of us have, are too refined for that. Like we, and so, if we go to the psalms like a theological text, we can be left with the question... Is this what God is like? Does God go about beating up our enemies and, and knocking the teeth out of people? Can we call down these kind of curses and, and God actually do it? Or we can go the flip side and go, man, look how messed up those people in the Old Testament were. That's why Jesus had to come and fix everything. And I don't think either case is, is right. I'm going to submit this summer that what the Psalms are is less about the nature of God and more about the nature of a, an honest human being interacting with a holy God and what that can actually look like. So we can't just dismiss these as, well, sometimes 
humans get it wrong. It was a book written, book written by humans, and sometimes humans mess it up. So obviously that text isn't right. We can't do that because God, for some reason, saw fit to put every psalm in there for our growth. But at the same time, just like we can't dismiss it because it's, it's probably not theology. Jesus said, turn the other cheek, not you know, knock the teeth out of your enemies. And so we can't say, well, David must have had it wrong. But at the same time, we can't believe that we can call down curses on somebody and God's going to go slap them in the face for you. So what we're doing this summer is we're studying the Psalms as what does it look like for an honest human being to pour out his true guts before God? The way Eugene Peterson says it is the imprecatory Psalms teach us to cuss without cussing. That they teach us to... Because none of us would say, God, I, I wish that you would just go break that guy's legs. We, we wouldn't say that. We're too refined for that. But how many of you have ever seen somebody getting wrong, away with injustice and you've thought, someday he'll get his? You ever thought that? You ever had that feeling like, one day he'll, he'll reap what he sows? And if we're honest, what's actually going on in there is, it's not fair that he gets away with that. God, break his teeth. Let him pay for what he's doing. Like... We, we don't use the same words, but those same things roll around in our hearts. And David actually just said it ugly. He just said it the way it was. And we're hoping to learn to do that. <coughs> Excuse me. So hopefully with Eugene Peterson, we can learn to cuss without cussing. Um, what David showed us is if we're thinking it, God wants us to say it to him, um, to share it with him, to get it out. So over the course of the study... We're going to talk about some outrageous things. We're going to talk about some insane things that that David says. And it might leave us with the question, is that what God is like? Is God like that? Is God harsh like that? We're going to hear a lot of, God, you you prepare me for battle so I can slay my enemies. And we're going to be left with the question, is that what God is like? And, uh, And I'm going to submit all summer long that that's not what this study is about. It's not a study about what God is like. It's a study about what we're like when we share our true selves with God. So would you do me a favor? Um, this isn't super long, so um, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? As a sign of respect for the Word of the Lord. Oops. Did I not get... Did I open up last week's stuff? I don't know where those came from. Anyway... Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. I have selected one of his sons for my, to be my king. So Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say uh, that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to that sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What is wrong? they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one of look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son uh, Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this, or Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all your sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied. How many of you have ever heard of somebody with seven kids and going, this is all the kids you have? I have. Jesse replied, uh, but he's not in the field watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down until and eat till he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and he brought that he had brought and he anointed David with oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then David returned to Ramah. Or Samuel returned to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. In sixth grade, I wore out my first record. I only had three 45 RPM records at the time. And I would just swap back and forth between them all day long. I spent a great deal of time, really as a child, um, grounded. And sixth grade was an especially hard year. Um, I had gotten suspended for making out with a girl in the hallway. Um, to my credit, she was two years older than me and had already started puberty. So um, that made it cool. Um, and then later that year, I got suspended again for flipping off a teacher. And then after the third time I got in trouble, my dad found out that if he let the principal give me swats, I wouldn't have to come home. So my dad like begged the school to beat me. And, uh, and the principal had this huge paddle that he held with two hands and like swung it at you. It, was, it, was, it only took it was three swats for a three-day suspension, but I only had to have it happen once, and I was on the straight and narrow after that. Um, but just because I was good at school... I still had a lot of consequences at home. So I spent the summer between 6th and 7th grade here mostly in my bedroom grounded um, for pretty much the whole summer just listening to my three albums over and over and over again. Um, I had Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll. I had Steve Miller Band's Abracadabra. <laughs> I knew Brent would get a kick out of it. And I had Sticks, Mr. Roboto. Right? Uh, and occasionally when my mom and dad were gone, I would sneak my mom's copy of uh, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell, and I would listen. And that was the whole album, and I would listen to that. But I wasn't supposed to, so I had to sneak it back into my mom's collection. Um, but uh, I actually listened to Mr. Roboto while I was writing my sermon, and, uh, and my wife left the room in disgust. But I still found it every bit as engaging as when I was 11. Um, but Joan Jett, by the end of summer, was warped and kind of warbly and, and played funny. And I, I think I had left it in the sun, but I like to say I absolutely wore it out that year. But um, there's something powerful about the music we listen to when we're young, the music that helps shape us. I doubtless only turned out as good as I did because of Joan Jett, Steve Miller, and uh, Sticks, and, of course, Meatloaf. But the music we listen to when we're young um, shapes us. And tonight we're going to be talking 
uh, about David's early, early stuff. So some of what shaped David when he was young. We don't know a lot about his very early life. There's been a lot of suppositions made about um, his mom and dad and their relationship based on some of the psalms he wrote. But we don't know much about any of that. But we can surmise some things from the stuff we do know about his relationship with God and the connection, the intimate connection that carried David through his long life. Um, The story of David's anointing that we read tonight is pretty familiar to most people. When Samuel uh, comes and anoints him king, and Samuel had anointed the standing king, Saul, and we find out from our story tonight that he still kind of hadn't learned his lesson because he anointed Saul because he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. He just looked kingly. And so when he shows up and he sees um, Eliab, David's oldest brother, he looks at him and what Samuel say immediately, this has got to be the Lord's anointed. He's, he's tall, he's handsome. And God tells him, that's not um, what we're doing now. Uh, I don't look at outward appearance, I look at the heart. And he shot down the next six of Jesse's sons, which leads us to David, who isn't even present um, at the party. He's out in the field. So Samuel has to fetch David, the youngest, and it feels like the entire party kind of sits here in awkward silence waiting for, for David to get there. He says, we're not going to eat until he gets here. So they all just kind of sit there and look at each other until David shows up. When he does, God speaks. This is the one. Samuel pours the oil and David is anointed king, the next king of Israel. There's a few statements in this passage that um, I want to dig into a little bit. And then we're going to tie them back to one of my favorite psalms. We're going to actually get into a psalm tonight. Um, that, that we think David probably wrote sometime right around here where we first see him walk into our Bibles. Uh, so verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by the appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this tonight. Um, we, we're all fairly familiar with this passage But David endures a lot in his life. And we like to think that he had a lot of opportunity to kind of develop and grow into uh, the man who is a man after God's own heart. He was treated unjustly. He grows into a great warrior. He's confronted with numerous moral dilemmas uh, and learns how to seek God for the right answers. We see him repent from brokenness. He overcomes failure. And he learns how to plan for a kingdom that's going to outlive him. We see David kind of grow into a great man. Um and faces a lot of opportunities to mature into that person. But we see right here in this verse that there was something in David's heart at a very young age that had already grabbed God's attention. Something that God had seen in David before he had any of those opportunities to do those things or develop those traits or grow into that person. Before he had made very many good or bad choices. And I know most of our amateur psychologists are going to get all geared up for a nature versus nurture debate. And that's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, What I want to see in this passage is that at this very moment, whatever our lives have to show for themselves, whether we're hugely successful, whether we've worked hard to to gain everything we've gained, whether we've worked hard to be a good person, whether we're getting back up from our thousandth fall, if we've tripped and fallen on our face 10,000 times and we're getting back up, At this moment, God doesn't see hardly any of that. God looks through all of that to what's in our heart. 
So while we're trying to do everything right and we're working super hard not to miss anything God has for us in our lives or we're white-knuckling a disciplined life to try to be good, God looks through every single one of those. Is your heart right? Is his heart right? Is her heart right? God sees through everything else. He looks at our heart. We can have a perfectly ordered life, doing everything right, and if our heart is far from God, God sees that. And that's how God measures it. I used to put a picture up of the cruciocentric life. You remember that? We have a cross in the middle. And how we like to think of a line and saved and unsaved, in and out. Like, and, and Jesus, when we hear him speak, he spoke in terms like near and far. Not necessarily in and out, near and far. We hear him say, you're, you're very near the kingdom of God. He said to the one Pharisee who was, who was asking him questions. It was near and far. And, and that if you have a person who is near but facing away from God, they're much farther from God than somebody who's far but facing toward. That those people that God looks at trajectory over time. And you take a snapshot of that person's life and he's like, that person's such a godly person. They read their Bible. They do the thing. They, they do what they're supposed to do. They, they don't drink, don't smoke, don't, don't cuss, you know, don't gamble and dance. None of those things. Look how close they are to God. But their heart is far from God. They're facing the wrong way. Then you got this person over here who looks a mess, but they're trying to find God. They're seeking after God. Their, their, their trajectory. And then you trace that picture over 10 years and you're going to have a very different picture. We can't, look, we can't see anything in a snapshot. God looks at the heart. God looks at, at, at which way our heart is facing. And we see that in this passage that when David is very young, before he's had a chance to do much at all, God sees something in his heart that he likes and wants. And so when he, when he tells Samuel, no, 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 don't look at outward appearance because I'm looking at the heart. God has spotted something in David's heart before David fought Goliath, before he became a warrior, before he became a king, And before he receives an everlasting covenant, when David is just a baby, the baby of the family and doing his chores, God sees something inside him that he wants. And while we're on the topic of David's chores, let's look at those for a second because this is what's going to unlock this great psalm. There is still the youngest, Jesse replies. He's out in the field watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome and and with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. David was a shepherd, we find out. And this is going to come up later in our study because David uses a lot of the metaphors and pictures and things that he learned as a shepherd when he becomes the shepherd of God's people later in his life. And he will write some psalms about that. Some of them we're very familiar with. But there's something more about David's life at this time that we can learn that has to do with uh, David's time he spent outdoors. David grew up in nature. He grew up an outdoorsy kind of kid. Quick survey. Who grew up an outdoorsy person? Some of you? Who, who, if you admit it, total city person, grew up in the city, lived in the city? A couple? Two? Okay. Uh, well, David was the outdoorsy type. He grew up stomping through creeks and, and uh, climbing trees and camping out. Um, total outdoorsman, born and raised, was David. And we know a little about what that would have looked like 
by archaeological and historical uh, findings for shepherds at that day, back before there were electric tags and software and good fencing, um, there was a, a very different way they had to do. They didn't even have processes to, to get feed to the animals. Like They didn't have ways of getting the grain and, the, and baling hay so you could bring hay to your animals. You had to graze your animals. You had to take them out in the field. So they'd bring them in to a small corral occasionally to do work, to, uh, to do you know, veterinary type stuff to the animals. And, but most of the time to feed your animals, you had to take them way out into the field and let them just graze. And so you basically just lived out in the fields with your animals. There's something else we get from the text, though. Uh, it says that David was dark. And this is actually meaningful in the Bible because in David's days, nobody went to the tanning salon or laid out by the pool to get that copper tone tan. Like, it, it, actually, what we know from Bible times is that light skin was highly sought after. It was what, because in order to have light skin, you had to be wealthy. And it meant you didn't work out in your fields. You had somebody else who worked out in your fields for you. And so if you walked in, you had light skin. It was actually a good thing. We learned this a little bit from um, the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon. Solomon had fallen in love with a commoner. And she was uh, embarrassed by her tan. She says this, I am dark, but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tent. Don't look at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. So David's tan would have been a sign of his kind of lower class um, laboring uh, status. He was dark because he spent his, his time out underneath the hot Middle Eastern sun caring for his sheep. And this, from this outdoor kind of sun-scorched vantage, he writes what I think is probably one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 19, which is where we're going to actually park today. And this is some gorgeous poetry. Um, so imagine David. Uh, he's young. It's, it's noon and the sun is right overhead. All the shadows are short. He's hiding underneath a tree in what little shade he can find. And he writes a poem um, to God because the sun has actually made him see something bigger than the sun. Here's how this psalm goes. For the choir director, a song of David. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they speak without sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a, giant, or like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heaven and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. David starts this poem talking about the sun. The, the immediate metaphor that lies right in front of him. Um, this is kind of the reality that draws him into a deeper reality. And the language is beautiful, full of symbolism. The sun is like a bridegroom bursting from the wedding chapel in rapturous joy. It's like an athlete that races across the sky. And possibly the part of David is most impressed with currently is its heat and glare reaches everywhere. It's all-encompassing. You can't escape it. 
Imagine him sitting out on a hot day talking about the sun. And what does he say? Nothing can hide from its heat. Then everything in the psalm changes. If you know Psalms 19, you know everything kind of shifts on a dime. Uh, This is so dramatic that some skeptics have actually believed that the later redactors probably found two snippets and just stuck them together into one psalm. But I don't think that's actually what happened. David says this, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. So look how fast this transition happens. He's talking about the sun. The sun rises at one end of the heaven, follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. So David starts with the sun, this immediate metaphor. And then he shifts, kind of on a dime. He talks about the sun... uh, and the heavens declaring the glory of God and the sun bursting forth. And then he shifts into talking about God's Torah. And the Hebrew word that he uses uh, at the beginning is, is Torah here. Um, and, he, and it's, again, the poetry is neat. He uses different words for Torah. Instructions, your decrees, your commandments, your commands, your law. He shifts um, as he talks about the Torah with using all these different words for him from all different poetic angles. But the real surprise, I think, is the way David talks about the Torah. Because we have a lot of debates about the law. And we have everybody, we have everything from people who want to get out from under the law and escape the law. And they judge anybody who is different by calling them a legalist in the most derogatory of tones. You're just a, you're just a legalist. You're just legalistic. And then we have people who uh, say they like the law, but what they really want to do is to be able to beat up anybody that disagrees with them or does things they disapprove of. But we rarely hear anybody talking about the law, talking about the rules of God being sweeter than honey, being more desirable than gold. David has a really interesting look at this, and it's, and it's obviously poetry. There's obviously some metaphor here. But David draws this poetic line between the, the law, the Torah, the commands of God, and the very best things in life. And I think this only makes sense if we keep it together with the first half of the psalm. So imagine David sleeping out at night. It's, it's a time when there were no electric, electric lights. Nighttime would have been black and frightening. This is an area and a time when wild animals would have been common. When it's cold at night, you have to sleep with the sheep just to stay warm. Imagine a young shepherd, a young teenage shepherd, sleeping out through the night. How beautiful that first glimpse of sunrise would be. That moment you first see the sun kind of peeking over the hills and and you made it through the night and you can see and how refreshing that sun would be and how glorious it would be to see the sunrise come over and chase away the night. And then imagine six hours later when that sun is directly above you and you feel like you're being cooked you feel like you're being you're literally in the glare of God's spotlight and David makes a connection he says God's word is like that so beautiful in the justices outlines and 
the life it promises, the security it offers. It's like a gorgeous sunrise after a long night. But oh, try to escape it. Try to escape that, that, that command. And it will cook you. It'll find all your naked places and its reach will be in, inescapable. So we can imagine that, that sun, if you've ever been stuck in the dark for a long time, how glorious and beautiful light can be. But then if you're stuck out under the sun working all day, how unbelievably penetrating it can be as well and how much you can desire to escape it. God's Word is that same way. Refreshing. When you hear a promise from God's Word and it meets you at a dark moment, at a dark time, it's like light shining in darkness. It's, it's beautiful. And then when you're doing something you shouldn't, and that same Word comes to you and penetrates your soul. It's like being caught in God's spotlight. It's like being cooked by the sun. Has anyone else ever had that moment when nature just kind of preaches to you? Anybody else that kind of person? Some people are, some people aren't. My mentor was the type that he used to tell me all the time. There was one time he was walking by a field and he saw a whole group of cows in, in a fairly tight spot chewing grass together. And he could, from where he was, he could see the manure like scattered throughout the grass. And they had that grass like cropped down pretty low. And then there's one cow all by itself over here eating fresh grass that had not been pooped on. And, and just, just like that, he said, it was like God spoke to him. If you follow the crowd, you wind up eating bad grass that's been crapped on. If you follow me, I will take you to the good grass. And you might have to walk alone sometimes, but I'll take you where the grass is sweet. And he just had this huge sermon that just spoke to his life. I heard him tell the story about this. Another time, he and I were, we were actually on a canoe trip, and we were just going down the river on our canoe, and he looks over, you know, when a tree would fall, falls, and the water kind of swirls in behind the tree and makes kind of a little dead spot. And there was nasty floaties in there and, and gross stuff, and it was kind of mucky on top of the water. But out where we were, where the water was flowing, it looked beautiful. And we're, we're just going along, and Bush said, you know, life is like that. If you allow yourself to stop flowing and moving, you get stagnant and nasty, and, and, and you get gross, and things will build up in you. You have to stay in the Spirit of God, moving and flowing, if you want to stay pure and clean. <laughs> and just glanced over and saw a little fallen tree, and this whole sermon just came bursting out. I think David was like that. I think David was the kind of person that sits under a hot sun and goes, you know, the sun is a lot like God's Word. Beautiful at times, gorgeous, a sunrise, nothing more, nothing better. If I could, I'd post a million pictures of it on Instagram. Like, nothing better than a good sunrise. And then six hours later, you're like, stop burning me, stop burning me. God's Word is just like that. So while sitting under the blazing sun, feeling like God's literal spotlight is on his life, spotlight is on his life. David responds to this naked examination like this. He says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I'll be free from guilt and innocent from great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David, sitting under the hot sun, leads to this point where he he can feel God's very word penetrating his soul. And somehow out of that, he's like, God, whatever you find in me, whatever your word digs up in me, help me to be pure. Help the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be pleasing to you. Obviously, I'm using a little holy imagination here, but it feels to me like David feels exposed under the sun that he praised only a few hours ago. And it triggers another time when he's felt exposed like that. David writes a song for an audience of a few sheep and one God. And in the end, he prays that the words of his mouth, the outward part that everybody can see, and the meditations of his heart, that inward part that nobody can see, would both be pleasing to God. And this is the young man that at the beginning of our story tonight, about whom God said, you look on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. David is praying, let the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And God says, that's exactly where I was looking anyway. The second thing I want to cover tonight um, touches on Psalms 19, but it also involves the beginning of our passage in 1 Samuel. David's time outdoors gifted us with some of the most beautiful nature poetry in existence. David wrote about nature a lot, and a lot of it is absolutely beautiful. David's relationship to nature and its many metaphors lent his relationship to God um, a richness that came out in his art. But Psalms 19 has this opening phrase that I do want to talk about. For the choir director of Psalm of David, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies display his craftsmanship. This is a regular theme of David's. And he will at times even go so far as to command nature to praise God, to glorify God. And this has inspired as many people as it has confused. Um, But we're going to take it tonight from the aspect of design. Many people wrestle with the idea of how a mountain can praise God. We can see a mountain as a piece of art and we can praise God, the artist. We can see it and it can inspire us to praise God. But what about the mountain itself? Can the mountain itself praise God? We can fall in love with a dog and see a metaphor of God's relationship to us in the dog in the way we have to care for it and feed it and clean up after it. And and it really offers nothing to our life other than the fact that we just love it. And we can see God in that, that he has to feed us and take care of us and do everything for us. And really we have nothing to offer God. And for some reason he just loves us. And we can look at this relationship to this dog and we can find God and we can worship God. But does the dog worship God? Notice I didn't say cats. Nobody loves cats. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I grew up with cats. I love cats. I just don't know if I could eat a whole one. Okay, so we, we can look at the mechanical, almost mathematical design of the universe, which we're going to talk about a little bit next week, and we can be inspired to the majesty of our Creator, the wisdom and brilliance of our Creator. But does the universe worship God? All of these responses to us worshiping God because of our because of a mountain, because of our cats and dogs, because of 
the, the majesty of the universe are appropriate responses. But we're still left to wrestle with the question, do those things worship God? And this is where design comes in. And this is also where I believe nature pulls us into question, into God's exposing sun. A mountain praises God by being a mountain. What I mean by that is it does exactly what it was created to do. It's created, God created a mountain to be a mountain. And when a mountain does what it was created to do, it's glorifying its maker. A dog, when it's being most dog-like, is glorifying God by being exactly what it was created to be. The universe just has to function as the universe to glorify its maker. All of these things are doing exactly what they were designed to do. Which brings in the question, what about us? Do we live according to our design? Genesis tells us that we were made to be image bearers of God. We were created to reflect God's glory in love and creativity. Just like the mountain was made to be a mountain, the dog was made to be a dog, the universe was made to be a universe, we were made for a purpose. We were made with a specific design to be image bearers of God. Let's look back at 1 Samuel 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have more than long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find the man named Jesse, who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. God has already selected David before Samuel ever showed up, before David had even heard of Goliath, before David's exile, before David even knew about this deal. God already had a design on David's life. Jeremiah's went like this. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Jeremiah's life had a design before it was even conceived. I'm not going to get into the deep theological waters of predestination or free will or anything. I'm just going to say, and I'll use this to kind of start my closing, so how do we respond to this? Because I've got to get that in there. We have a tendency to think that we offer our lives to God, that somehow we... We make a sacrifice of our lives. I give myself to God like it's, a, it's some kind of great gift. Or that maybe we're choosing Him, or even worse, choosing heaven. But I'd like to submit that when we do follow God, when we do obey God, all we're doing is what the mountain has been doing forever. We're just finally getting as smart as our dogs We're just finally getting to where we're doing what we were made to do, what we were designed to do. We're not offering any great gift. We're just doing what we were made to do. We're just being what we were made to be. When we bear God's image well, we're just doing what God created us to do. The mountain was made to be a mountain and you were made to be an image bearer. This is what makes life worship. It doesn't mean we 
like living a life of worship doesn't mean we sing songs 24-7. It means we live by a design. In Genesis, Adam and Eve weren't dropped into a worship service. They weren't commanded. They were never even commanded to worship God. They were commanded to tend the garden and to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the earth and to name things. They were, they were given a life to live. That's what they were designed for. They were commanded to live a life bearing God's image. To, to run the kingdom of God in God's stead. To, to be image bearers of God. They were to love and grow and flourish and help creation to flourish. And that's what they were designed to do. So moms, when you care for your kiddos and you change diapers and you put band-aids on boo-boos, you're doing what a mom is supposed to do. That's an act of worship. When David says the, the all creation glorifies God, that means everything that's doing what it was designed to do is glorifying God. Dads, when we help our teenagers after they've screwed up, get back up and figure out how to sort their life out again. We're just, we're just bearing God's image in their life. We're doing what we were created to do. Grandparents, when you have the ability to see... I guess I'll face this way. When you have the ability to see through your grandkids' messes to, to the heart that their parents can't even see yet because their parents are too deep in the parenting thing to see through and you can respond to them on that level, you're just doing what you were created to do. That's an act of worship. When we go to work, when we do art, when we are present with someone else in their pain, that's what God does. We're just bearing God's image in that moment. We're just doing what God would do. That's an act of worship. When we feed and pick up after our dogs and cats, we're just doing what God does. All of that is worship. And here's what's interesting. David's heart from the very beginning, from a very early age, had this desire to worship in God's house. From some of his earliest songs, he was like, oh, that I could live in your house forever. But what's interesting is most of his worship music he wrote, he wrote in the field. He wrote while in exile, camping out. He wrote while dealing with the bureaucracy of running a government. He, he worshipped God in the midst of his life every day while serving in the army. So in a sense, the things we call worship actually aren't usually the worship. This, this thing that we do as worship really isn't the, the worship. This is what we need so that we can worship well. We need this to recharge, to get back on our feet, to heal, so that we can go out and worship as we change diapers and as we change tires and as we change our own hearts to love better and live better and be better. Our lives are supposed to be the worship. Everything we do is supposed to be worship. And the Psalms testify to that. Eugene Peterson has something he said that has stuck with me forever that I absolutely love. He said, prayers are not tools for doing and getting, but for being and becoming. Prayers are not tools for doing and getting, but for being and becoming. So I'd like to challenge us this week as we continue to read the Psalms, as we continue to engage God as we read them, that we start to pray in such a way 
that we ask for less and become more. That something in us would submit in prayer to let God work on our hearts and change our hearts to be better image bearers. To say, God, where am I not bearing your image well? I want my life to be worship. I want to be at least as smart as my dog. I want to be what I was designed to be. I want to do what, you, what you've asked me to do, to bear your image in this world. And that maybe our time in the Psalms would help us to do this. As David would say, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.